0: Well, it is good to see all of you. If you're a guest, I'm David, I'm the pastor. And uh, we're glad to have you here. It's been crazy few, few weeks with all the illness and COVID. And, man, we have so many talented people. I'm so thankful for the talent God has given us filling in. COVID has hit our, our, our praise group hard. It's hit our staff hard. Lost the music guy this week. You know, he'll come back eventually, but, you know, we lost him. And it's kind of, I kind of feel like an NFL franchise every Sunday trying to figure out who's on the COVID list and who's not, you know. <laughs> Who are we going to play this week? Who's going to make it? I don't know. I'm about ready. It's like NFL franchise to have to go steal someone off another church somewhere maybe to bring them on here a little bit for a couple of weeks. It'll work. But, uh, and people concerned all the time about me. I know I sound horrible. I got it. I'm good. I, it's just allergies. I'm feeling 100%. I don't need anybody else to slip me anything on the side and telling <laughs> me I'm going to feel better. I feel like I'm to the 70s and I'm back in high school with that going on like that. Some of you laugh, and some of you are smiling fondly. Remember those days. It's a little inside. you feel good and all that. So we're glad to hear. We're, the Lord's blessed us. We're so fortunate in our life in the ministry of our church. We're in a series that started last week, going through the end of April, called Breakthrough. And uh, it's, it's about the Gospel of Mark. And it's a rather long series. I know it's the longest one I've done, but it, you know, I think it's, one, it's going to be a blessing for all of us. I encourage you to read through the Gospel of Mark. Read through it a couple of times, you know, read through it every month. I said this last week, be fluent in the gospel of Mark. Become fluent in the gospel of Mark. Uh, I gave a pretty lengthy introduction last week, not going to do that again, just remind you that Mark was written probably about 58 to 60 AD, about the same time Matthew and Luke were written. Um, they, they, they probably Mark was probably written first. Matthew, Luke, and Luke, this just has has no bearing on the the inspiration. They were all still inspired by the Holy Spirit. They probably used some of, of Mark's material, kind of as as a basis, as a platform, the way to go. Primarily, I think, because Mark, we were told got, by the early church fathers, said Mark got his information from Peter. The early church fathers all testify, not all, but most of them testify that Mark got his information from Peter. And if you read the Gospel of Mark, it looks like it's a first-hand account of a lot of it. Somebody was there sharing what was going on. in Mark, and, and this is what I want you to see from the Gospel. I think it's important. They're writing to a primarily Gentile audience. Mark's account of the life of Jesus provides a breakthrough for people who knew nothing of the God who loved them. He wrote, so people who knew nothing of the love of God could have a breakthrough in their life. And that's why Mark is so relevant to us today, to so many people who know nothing of the love of God. We started with Jesus breaking into the world, again, not at his birth. Mark didn't deal with his birth, but, but the ministry of Jesus. And today, we're going to kind of go through the rest of chapter 1, and we're going to see breaking with Jesus, that, that the breakthrough life is you break from sin, but you break with Jesus And what I want you to see from the message today, and I've I've shared this with you before. It's been the point of numerous sermons, but it's important. Here it is. Christians follow Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. To be a Christian at its core is to follow Jesus. There's nothing more to it than less, less than that. But here's the thing. Sometimes people say they follow Jesus or they're a Christian and you kind of wonder about that. So understand this. But following Jesus must be authentic. It must be real. It has to be a real following of Christ. And so, um, as we begin the message today. I want to talk to you about the call of the disciples, because that's kind of where we are today, the calling of some of the disciples. And, and uh, as I shared with you last week, uh, the first 13 verses of Mark's kind of introduction, you get to verse 14, and Jesus is, is traveling around, preaching the message, repent, believe the gospel. That mark begins about a year into the ministry of Jesus, okay? he's not the beginning of it, but about a year into it. And and I I shared with you a little bit last week, if you want to know what went on that first year, the Gospel of John fills in a lot of those details. John tells us a lot of what happened. And uh, we know uh, early on that Jesus encountered Andrew and Peter and James and John and Philip and Nathaniel, and they began in a very general way. To hang with Jesus and go along with Jesus, they they were with him when uh, you know at the wedding feast of Cana when he turned the water into wine. He went down to Jerusalem and other guys were with him as well. Drove the money changers for the first time out of the temple, <clears throat> but these guys weren't with him. Like we think of the apostles, you know, it was taught for three years. They were with Jesus day and night. It wasn't that way. I mean, that first year they kind of came and left. I mean, they 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 they, they, they were following him to some degree. They kind of they kind of hung with him, but there is a process to their becoming really followers of Jesus. You understand that becoming a follower of Christ, being a follower of Christ, being a Christian, really, is it, a process, it's a journey. Now, you know, I, I understand as a, as a strong you know, evangelical Southern Baptist, I understand there's a point in life where we, we go, if we're a Christian, from being not a Christian to a Christian. There is a, a point we cross over of faith. I get that. But the journey up to that point is real. In fact, Peter is a great example of the journey of someone as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we, we see that journey. And, and, and we come to a point now, Jesus, Peter says, began, began his message. You know, the, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then Peter gives Mark an account of his own life, of a critical event that happened. And in verse 16, it begins this way. And he, that is Jesus, was going by the Sea of Galilee. And he saw Simon and Andrew. Now, Jesus, I, I grew up, when I was taught and growing up in Baptist church in my life, I was taught in something called, I call spontaneous conversion. You know what that means? It means that Jesus, Jesus showed up out of the blue one day for the first time at the sea, first time he saw Peter and James and John and Andrew, and he looked at them and said, follow me. And they just looked and said, what, what? Oh yeah, okay. And they just followed. Well, that's not how it happened. They, they've been hanging with Jesus for a while and they were back fishing And with intentionality, Jesus went to them. He wasn't just casually strolling. He went to them at the Sea of Galilee. He saw them. He was looking for them. They were casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. That's what they did. And that's what they were doing. And it probably had a pretty good fishing business. I mean, you you have Peter and Andrew, and then you have right after John and and James. Their families were probably in it together. They would have had a lot of boats, multiple boats. I mean, there are stories, you know, of Jesus getting away from the crowds. And when he got away from the crowd, he hopped into a boat. Well, whose boat do you think he got into? You think he said, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm commandeering the boat. You know, no. they would have been from these guys' families. And this is what would happen. And so that's what they were doing. So Jesus sees them. He sees them fishing. He comes up to them. At the end of the fishing time, they've done it all. And in verse 17, he said to them, follow me. Follow me. Now, this isn't actually a command. It's not a verb. It's an adverb. <clears throat> and it means something like this. They had been with him a while. He comes up, gets their attention, said, guys, it's time. It's time. You've been, we've been doing this long enough. It's time. You, you need to follow me. And he said, and I will make you become something. I'll make you become fishers of men. Now, we normally think this is just a cute little play on words. But actually, in the Old Testament, in the, especially in the book of Jeremiah, Excuse me. God is called the fisher of men in terms of judgment. The idea of being of God, the fisher of men, is to judge. And now Jesus is flipping that around because they're not going to be judging. They're going to spend their going to people, going to people with their life with a special message. He says, I want you to come alongside me. Now, now, the word to follow is to come on. Its time is here. And verse 18 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, the word immediately can mean several things, it can mean like at that instant. Or that's the next thing in the process, or quickly. Mark uses it 47 times, I think, or f- over 40 times, to move the story along. And what they're saying is the very next thing they did in their life was to follow Jesus. Now, the word follow there is a verb that means to make a decision to go with. The follow was an act, they made a decision, they followed Jesus. The word means to go alongside of. It doesn't mean to follow in a line, but to follow on a journey. It was used quite often back in that time of people in discipleship. And means they decided to go with Jesus, it's a word that speaks of commitment. They committed themselves to spend the journey with Christ from that point forward. Now, they left everything to follow Jesus. didn't mean they abandoned everything. It didn't mean they abandoned their family. It didn't mean they abandoned their work. Like I said, you know, there's a family business. They left it. We know in John 21, it's time, you know, when, when after they had seen the resurrected Jesus, before they were commissioned, not knowing what to do, they kind of just helped the old man out fishing a little bit. You know, like I said, when Jesus had to cross the Sea of Galilee, he took a boat, probably took their boat. It didn't mean they abandoned their families. They didn't abandon their families. And a few verses later, Jesus is with Peter at Peter's mother-in-law's house. The whole group staying with the mother-in-law. I'm telling you something. If you're going to abandon your family, and you're a guy. You know where you start is with your mother-in-law. <laughs> if they had abandoned their family, that's not where they would have gone. It's just it's it's about changing your priorities. It's about forsaking all else. Whenever uh, a, a guy and a gal want to get married, and, I'm, and I don't do a lot of marriage counseling, I'm a little premarital counseling. I'm not. I just I just say good luck. You know, that's all I know to tell you. But I give you a few words of advice. And one of the things I say is when you get married. All other relationships become secondary. It's not that a gal can't have other guy friends. It's not that she gives up all her friends that she's known that are guys, or a guy gives up all his gal friends. It's that those friendships no longer are important. The friendship, the marriage, the commitment to your spouse is the priority. They don't have a part of you. and Especially when you think about getting married. In Genesis, it says this, that a guy leaves his mama and daddy, and he goes and cleaves and clings to his wife. I'm going to give you guys some advice, okay? This is, this is free. You need this. When you have to choose between your wife and your mama, you always choose your wife. Some of you mamas need to let go. Remember how your mother-in-law treated you and you hated it? Don't be her. But guys, always pick. I don't care if you think your wife's wrong. Always pick your wife over your mama. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's why. Trust me on this one. Your mama may be mad at you, but the next time your mama cooks you dinner, she ain't going to poison you. Pick your wife over your mama every time. The call of Jesus upon our life is the call to forsake all else and go with him. He becomes the priority of your life. It is a call of commitment, not contribution. Commitment. Many people want to contribute something in their life to Jesus. No, it's the commitment. Mark makes it clear that to repent and believe in the gospel is to break with one's old way of life and to follow Jesus. You break away from that life, and you now have as your priority to follow alongside Jesus. Well, they do that. The next couple of verses, John and James follow. And they were kind of told in synopsis of what's kind of went on that they just traveled around. Sea of Galilee. And they ended up in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, they were in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, Jesus began to teach. And they said he taught as one having authority. And the people were amazed because he wasn't like the religious leaders. But one having authority. And then there was in the synagogue a guy with an unclean spirit crying out. And Jesus cast that spirit out and cleansed him. And people were shocked and amazed. And they all went to get their friends to tell him. To come to Jesus. Jesus went outside. Immediately they left. They went to the house of Peter's mother-in-law. When they got there, she had a fever. So Jesus healed her. And now the word really spread. So people are coming to the house. And they're pressing at the house. And Jesus goes outside and he begins to heal people. And he begins to make them better. But that's not why he came. And so he eventually gets away and he's going off someplace away. And early in the morning, these guys, Peter says, you know, like, we went to try to find him. We found him and said, Jesus, come on. The people are looking for you. Let's go do all that healing stuff again. And Jesus didn't do that. You know, Jesus never sought the crowds. He sought places to teach. He never sought the mob. He never looked at ways to heal people. In fact, that's not why Jesus came. That Jesus tells Peter and John and James and Andrew exactly why he came. In verse 38, he said this. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that for the purpose of I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. I came not to heal, but to preach the gospel. You know, Jesus, he didn't come into this world to meet felt needs of people. He didn't. That's not the purpose of the church either. I hear people all the time say, you know, the purpose of the church is meet the needs of people. No, it's not. Purpose of the church. So lead them to Christ. Oh, we'll meet the needs. It's not we don't ever do it. It's not why we're here. You know what Jesus could have done? Jesus could have taken a tent, popped it up on the side of the road, or right in the middle of any town he wanted, and people would have flocked from all over the world for him to heal them, for him to touch them, to feed them. He never did that. He left that behind. Now, we come in the next part of this story as Peter shares it. To kind of see the reason and the rationale for that or what could have happened, we come to what I call a puzzling healing. Surely a, a cleansing more than a healing. People historically have followed Jesus for different reasons, but they all boil down to two. One is for salvation. Some people follow Jesus. So they can have a relationship with God. The sin's forgiven, cleansed, they can be saved. I mean, that's, that's what we call it. All those different terms that we use, but they come for salvation. But many people come for self. They come to Jesus to see what they can get from Jesus, to leverage Jesus for their own benefit. Now, this has always been happened. At the end of the first century, on into the second, third, and fourth, there was a, an, just a vicious insidious philosophy of the Greeks called Gnosticism. It was a parasite. Gnosticism could never survive on its own. It always looked for something else to attach itself to. And it attached itself to Christianity for several centuries. Now, at the heart of Gnosticism is Greek dualism. Dualism is this, that the spirit and the, and the body are separate. There's no connection. The spirit is good. Spiritual is good. The body, the physical, is evil. And in order to elevate the spiritual, you needed knowledge, a certain knowledge that elevates you. And they call that knowledge will be salvation or enlightenment or whatever. And it elevates the person who has it. The person who has this knowledge is elevated and glorified. Gnosticism attached itself to Christianity. It saw that as a means because there were some similarities and ideas of thought. And it began to leverage Jesus. Now, Gnostics never really clung to Jesus. In fact, every form of Gnosticism either denied Jesus as a human or denied Jesus as a God because you couldn't have God in the flesh because you couldn't have the physical and the spiritual together. And so they, they leveraged Jesus, though, to what they could get out of it. I mean, And, and you see it all throughout. The early church fathers all dealt with that. I mean, you know, um, Papias in the the end of the first, in the the second dealt with it. Irenaeus dealt with it. Eusebius, they all dealt with it. They finally eradicated it. But it was about elevating self. You come to today, inside the church, you see some of the same stuff. People come within Christianity, they either want to elevate the culture, elevate their effort, or elevate the spiritual. I mean, you see that. People elevating the spiritual aspect, that that you can be super spiritual. You see that? We see that in, in prosperity gospel, to be honest. It's a form of Gnosticism. It is vicious and it is insidious. It is a parasite that attacks the church. At the heart of the prosperity gospel. And I see friends of mine post stuff all the time. That's like, that's not true. That's just prosperity gospel. At the heart of prosperity gospel is this. If you have enough faith, God will make you something. Could be prosperous, wealthy, could be healthy. But he will make you something if you do things God's way. Have, Have enough faith, enough belief. Now this isn't based on Christ. This isn't saving faith. This goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the Old Testament idea of a God who blesses and curses. And if you do things a certain way, God will bless you. And they take that over and all they do. In fact, in prosperity gospel, Jesus isn't the son of God. Not in the way we mean it. What they do in the prosperity gospel is they use Jesus and say, they attach themselves to Jesus and said, if you will pray to Jesus, be like Jesus, act like Jesus, God will do all these things. They never talk about a saving relationship. And primarily, it's about being prosperous. And and the people who benefit most from prosperity gospel are the people who preach and teach the prosperity gospel. It's a heightened form of spiritualism. If you're spiritual enough, God does this. We see the same thing through our own efforts. Within the church, there has always been the struggle, always been the problem of people elevating their efforts. Here's what tends to happen. It happens to people in Baptist churches. God, I'll make a deal with you. I'll believe in you. I believe in the Bible. I believe in Christmas and Easter. I'll come to church. I'll give you some money in exchange. I can live my life however I want. And as long as I'm not really horrible, at the end of life, you and I have a bargain. I did these things for you, and you'll let me into heaven. Happens all the time. And sometimes we elevate our culture. We see that. I talked about this extensively in the last year. We say, look at all of our culture and all those people. And we need to be more accepting of what they believe and more accepting of all the things they do. And we elevate the culture. And we invite the culture into our world. And we never help the people of the culture realize they need to have a saving relationship with Jesus. All we do is leverage Jesus for what we can get from it. And people follow Jesus, supposedly, for the wrong reason. Here's the thing. If you follow Jesus for the wrong reason, You're not really following Jesus. If you follow Jesus, to leverage Jesus, to see what you can get from him for your benefit, you're not following Jesus. So Peter tells the story to Mark that Mark records. It's a fascinating story. It's about a healing, or really a cleansing. And it begins this way. And a leper came to Jesus. Now, we don't have much dealing with leprosy. because of our hygiene and cleanliness, we just don't deal with it. Third world countries still do some. And there's, leprosy is a term back then that covered a lot of things. If you had a skin rash, you had a a boil, you had leprosy. And what you would do is when it cleared up, you'd go to the priest and and the priest would cleanse you, say you're clean and and you're good to go and have a sacrifice on your way. But this leprosy, the leprosy that we talk about, it's called Hansen's disease. And it it was the one that just infects the body where people's fingers fall off and their faces deformed and they were completely unclean. It was a dangerous, you, you could catch leprosy from someone. You, you, you just had to avoid them. And so lepers were unclean. And wherever they came out, long before our government told us we had to social distance and wear masks, <laughs> there were lepers. They couldn't come near anybody. They, could, they had to be completely covered over. One rabbi bragged about throwing rocks at lepers to drive them out. So verse 40 says, and a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, begging him, falling on his knees before him. You realize when he fell on his knees before Jesus, he was where he wasn't supposed to be, right up next to somebody. And he was saying to him over and over, if you are willing, you can make me clean, if. If. We call that a, in the Greek text a third class conditional sentence. You don't care about the fancy. I'm just saying that to you to show you how to have a little bit of knowledge of Greek and make you feel somewhat impressed. <laughs> what it means is this it assumes something to be true, but that it will not necessarily happen. He assumes Jesus can heal him. That's amazing, cleanse him. He knows he can. He just doesn't know if he will. Verse 41. Moved with compassion. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, it doesn't say compassion. It says Jesus was indignant. Um, and there's a lot of different, you know, the Greek that came down through the world, there was different Greek text families. You don't care about that. But, but you know, they kind of put them together. Once in a while, you'll have some variants in the Greek. And uh, one of the textual families has the word for indignant. And while the NIV, you know, most of the time does things, you know, copies things right, for some reason they went off into this variant instead of compassion. But if you have the New American Standard, the English Standard, the King James, New Living Translation, New King James, Revised Standard, uh, American Standard, uh, Holman, whatever, it says compassion. i would know, be, for whatever reason, went off with indignant. Compassion. Jesus, and that fits the context. Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched. And when Jesus touched this leper, everybody would have gone, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And everybody would have taken a step back, hang on. Because the minute he touched him, Jesus became unclean. And the minute he touched him, he risked leprosy. said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Jesus said, I'm willing. You be cleansed. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Immediately. That immediately means immediately. He was clean. The leprosy was just gone. And everybody saw it like, whoa. Let me tell you something about leprosy. Leprosy, that leprosy, you weren't able to be cleansed of that. It was called the living death. All of you like The Walking Dead, the zombies, and all those movies, there you go. They were the first living dead because there was no cure. In fact, in the Old Testament, only two lepers were ever healed. Miriam, the the sister of of Moses in Numbers 12, and and, uh, Naaman, the leper in uh, the general from Syria in 2 Kings 7. And both times, God did it in both times. There was a prophet near. I mean, you didn't get cleansed of leprosy. In fact, only raising of the dead was considered a greater miracle than cleansing a leper. So the greatest miracle that could occur outside the raising of the dead just occurred, the cleansing of the leper. And then in verse 43, Jesus sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. Now, sternly warned him means forcefully warned him. What does he warn him about? Shouldn't they be celebrating? Well, verse 44 tells us. And he said to him, <clears throat> See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded. So you go to the priest. They had to go to the priest and show them a cleanse. Had to give an offering. And here's why Jesus wanted him to do that. As a testimony to them. The word testimony means witness. See, here's the thing. When he went with with the real leprosy, that never is cured or healed. When he went with that or cleansed to the priest, the priest would have known what happened could only have come from God. It it would have known as a legitimate miracle. And somebody associated with God had to make that happen. And that was Jesus. That's what he was to do. But, verse 45 tells us, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around. I, I get that. I mean, come on. You've been a leper for however long. It's the walking death. Nobody wants near you. You're going to go out and tell people. You're going to go hug people. You're going to go grab them. You're probably going to kiss them. You're going to do all that stuff. Look at me. Look at me. He did that. Maybe he eventually went to the priest. We don't know. But he did that. He did it to such an extent. He did it so much. And and remember, this is the greatest miracle that can happen outside of raising of the dead. Jesus couldn't go publicly anywhere. He couldn't enter a sinner. But he stayed out in the unpopulated area, out in the country. And they were coming to him from everywhere. They came to Jesus. Why did they come to Jesus? To follow him? No. To save him from their sin? Oh, no. They came to Jesus to see what Jesus did. Could do for them. They came to Jesus to leverage Jesus to benefit their life. And this was the danger that people would follow Jesus for the wrong reason. In the temptation experience of Jesus in Matthew 4, Satan said, You know, you can turn stones into bread, people would follow Jesus. You could jump from the temple. God will save you. Everybody would see that. You could just bow down and worship me and everybody will follow you. He offered Jesus three ways to have the people follow him without committing their life to him. Three ways that people would follow Jesus, only they weren't committed to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to be committed to them. And that's the problem we have in the world today. Is that people want Jesus to be committed to them. They want to leverage Jesus. Here's the thing. Breaking with Jesus is to break from sin and self and to commit your life totally to Jesus. It is an authentic faith. If you're going to break with Jesus, then you've got to break away from self. You've got to break away from sin. You've got to break away from you. You've got to break away from the idea that you can leverage Jesus to get what you want. You've got to break from you. And you've got to commit your life to him. That's what it means to break with Jesus. It's the authentic faith. And there are a lot of people You say they're Christians. A lot of people sitting in churches. A lot of people who call themselves all sorts of things. But their faith isn't authentic. They elevate themselves. And they use Jesus to do it. Remember what we've seen these last two weeks. From Jesus, repent, believe, follow. This is the call of Jesus. It forms everything we do, at least according to Jesus. Peter said, he came, told Mark. Mark wrote it down. He said, Mark, Mark, Mark. This is how it all began. Jesus came. He said, repent, turn away from your sin. He said, believe, have faith, commit yourself to him. And you know, oh, by the way, As the evidence of that, you just follow along with me. We did that, Mark. And when we did that, it shaped and formed everything we did. Our lives changed because we were completely committed to Christ. Following Jesus is the difference between commitment and a contribution. Jesus doesn't need you to contribute anything. He needs you to commit your life. Have you broke away from sin? Have you broke away from self? Have you broke away from that leveraging of Jesus to get what you want? Have you broken with Jesus to repent of sin, to believe and trust him completely and to give your life to follow him? Is it authentic? Over these next few weeks and months, as we go through the gospel of Mark, I invite you to break with Jesus. I invite you to break away from your own life and break with him. Some of you may be willing and ready to do that right now. Right now, you're ready to break with Jesus. Why don't you give your life to him? Why don't you trust him to save you? And you can do that where you are. And In just a few seconds, we'll be standing here if you want to come and talk to one of us about giving your life to Christ, if you want to pray with one of us, you can do that. Maybe, maybe in your life what, what you really need is to pray for someone else that you know is struggling. You can do that. Maybe you've been following Christ, but you've been kind of leveraging Jesus for your benefit, and you realize, hey, I've got to stop doing that. I've got to start really making it about following Christ. You can have that time of renewal. Maybe you want to pr- uh, join our church. I, I, you know I don't know what you need to do. I know this, though, in our life, we need to break away from sin. We need to break Jesus, and we need to do that today. So, Father, you've given us the greatest gift of all, Christ our Lord. I pray in the name of Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we would learn to break away from our sin, to break away from ourselves, to quit trying, to leverage Jesus, to see what we can get from him. But instead, Lord, to surrender ourselves to him completely, to like Peter and Andrew, James and John, to understand that now is the moment you were saying, come on, the time is now. Come, come. And that we will repent, believe, and follow. Oh, Father, that we would follow Jesus for now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand? We'll be here if you need to come.